Well, I will as they continue to take the offering. First of all, welcome you guys. I'm so glad to have you with us this morning. And I know that many of you have appreciated the extra hour of sleep that you got this morning. I can tell that many of you got an extra hour of beauty sleep today. So uh, obviously some of you uh, also set your clock forward to an hour instead. I'm just kidding. Uh, It is a blessing to be able to... uh, Uh, be able to gather with you guys today to be able to worship the Lord. And it is a busy time that is going on, not only in the church, but in the community. Uh, But there are certain things that we must always keep our eyes on. It's easy to get distracted by all these particular items, these crisis moments. But the reality is there are things that are constant, and they should be. Do you believe that the judgment of God is real today? Do you believe that when the judgment of God takes place, that there will only be two possible options, heaven for those who have been redeemed by God and hell for those who are without Christ? Do you believe that hell is a horrible place of eternal suffering? My assumption is that most everyone here would answer those questions with an emphatic yes, absolutely. We've heard it preached on many occasions and we've even read it clearly in the scriptures. But what does that affirmative response mean? I'll be using today and next Sunday's message to answer this question. As we close out this series, which has used sports as a metaphor for Christian living. In fact, I was going to do it all today, but the reality is I don't have enough time. Uh, There are too many things that I want to be able to share with you. And in addition to that, uh, today we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. So instead of cheating this message and only trying to squeeze it in all within a short period of time, we'll be doing this over the next two Sundays. Today's message is entitled Game Day uh, because it's about today. It's not so much about all the practice that has gone in up until now. It's about what happens today on game day. Next week, we'll actually be looking at Championship Sunday, which is kind of that, uh, the very end of the line for all of us. But today, let's focus on game day. We've talked in recent weeks about a prize that we all press on to receive, a crown of righteousness. We've talked about heaven as a reward for those who enter into this race and they run it with perseverance. Well, I want to take a moment today and I want us to consider the alternative to this reward. What happens if we lose the race? What happens if our loved ones lose the race? Let's start today with a couple of passages of scripture that deal with the coming judgment. The first one is directly from Jesus, and it's found in Matthew chapter 25. He's talking about a great judgment when the righteous will be separated from the unrighteous. And of course, we've already considered heaven as our reward, but what happens to those who don't go to heaven? I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. This is what it says in verse 41, Matthew 25, 41. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Later in this same passage, in verse 46, it refers to this punishment as eternal judgment. Hell is referred to in many ways throughout the scriptures. Often it is referred to as the pit or the abyss 
It is referred to as Hades or the lake of fire or another term that is often used is Gehenna. In some places it is described as a place of eternal darkness. In other places it's simply noted as a place of great suffering or separation from God. Revelation 21.8 tells us that cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Without question, all of these serve to depict a place of torment and suffering. They give us the image of utter brokenness and defeat. I was thinking about the terms that are often used to describe hell or to even define hell. And one of them that I mentioned there was Gehenna. It was actually the name of a region just outside of the city of Jerusalem. Generations earlier, during the reign of King Ahaz and King Manasseh, it was in the valley of Gehenna where God's people were drawn into idol worship. Worship that had been commonplace in Canaan before the Israelites had arrived there. It was the worship of a god named Molech. And it included the pagan practice of sacrificing their own children in fire to appease their god. By the time Jesus came along, Molech wasn't necessarily the god of choice. But this area called Gehenna had become an uninhabitable land that was used for nothing but disposal of garbage. In fact, it is said that the fires of Gehenna burned continually throughout Jesus' ministry, burning off all the things that mankind no longer found useful. In this context, Gehenna makes sense as a final destination. But regardless of the name associated with hell, it is a place where nobody should ever want to be. I've heard people joke about hell and its reality. I've heard others question the existence of such a place. Surely if God is so good and loving, he would never send people to that place. Let me first say that there is enough evidence in Scripture to confirm, to verify the existence of such a place. But even if there were legitimate questions about the reality of hell, wouldn't you rather err on the side of caution? Let me explain what I mean. My aunt has often been willing to open up her home to friends of her children. One of those friends turned out to be a police officer. Police officer. They lived down in the Batesburg and Leesville area, incredibly small town. He would spend a great deal of time at their house and even hung out there often before work, had a change of clothes with him usually, and, and basically he would just kind of hang out. Well, one night as he was preparing to go on duty, my cousin noticed that he wasn't wearing his bulletproof vest. She fussed at him and explained to him that basically, uh, regardless of how uncomfortable it was, he should be wearing it. He expressed his frustration over wearing it. It's just so cumbersome and bulky. He said, if I wear it, I'll be slower, and I don't want to do that. And, and basically said, nothing ever happens in this town anyways. Well, she wouldn't let up, and she continued to fuss at him until finally he said, fine. And he went and he put his vest on, and then he went on duty. 
he actually today will reflect on the fact that he believes my cousin saved his life that night. In that little hick town, Batesburg and Leesville, where nothing ever happens, he got into a confrontation that night and he was shot in the chest. But because he had his vest on, he lived. Now, here's the thing. There is a good likelihood he will never be shot at again. There is a good likelihood that in that particular town, he will never have anyone else even point a gun at him because it is a small hick town. And I don't mean that to insult anybody if you're from there. All my family lives down there except for my mom. So it's not intended to be insulting. But here's the point. Every time he goes in, he now wears that vest. And the reason he does is because just in case it were to be tonight, he wants to make sure he's ready. Well, in the same way with hell, if there is any question in your mind as to whether there might be a hell, wouldn't it make sense for you to be prepared just in case? We need to recognize that hell is a real place. Our focus today is not as much about you being ready, but it's about you making sure that your loved ones are ready. By the way, next Sunday we'll focus on you. This Sunday is about making sure that our loved ones are ready. A friend of mine recently spoke with me regarding his own struggle with faith in God. He noted that he didn't question God because of an unanswered prayer. It wasn't like he asked God to do something and God didn't respond. He said it had nothing to do with that. His struggle with faith is based on what he sees in the body of Christ. And let me explain what I mean. His struggle is... Because he is hearing one thing from the church, but he is seeing something different. Now, many of us right now, we've got in the back of our mind all kinds of examples where that has taken place. But let me share with you the one example that he shared, because I think that for most of us, it will cause us to at least question where we are. As Christians, we often talk about the judgment of God. We claim to believe in hell And that the only way to avoid this eternal suffering is to experience a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, if we genuinely believe that hell is the only alternative for anyone without Christ, and we genuinely love the people in our lives, wouldn't we do everything possible to keep them from that hell? Wouldn't we want to knock on every door, stop every person on the street who would listen to us? Wouldn't we passionately give of ourselves to make sure that our kids, our neighbors, our spouses were in the family of Christ? That they were even a part of the church? Maybe not even necessarily this church, but the church as a whole. Now, I know that we all do things in different ways. Some of us are gifted with the ability to talk to just about anybody. Some are better at singing or providing a meal to someone who's in need or just being there for someone so that they can hug on you and lean on you during times of brokenness. Some people are so extroverted that they would talk to a tree if they thought that it would give them a response. Some are so introverted that a tree is about the only one that they want to talk to. I get the fact that we are all very different from one another. I also get the fact that some of us simply don't feel confident in sharing our faith. 
What if someone is offended by what we say? What if I don't say it right? What if we, what if we leave them worse off than what they were before I talked with them? By the way, I always find that last objection uh, a little bit odd, um, simply because when you met them, they were without Christ, which means they were on their way to hell. Now, is it really possible for you to leave them worse off than that? It's really not. The truth is, we are offering them the only hope of eternal life. So you believe in hell, you believe that it's real. What are you going to do about it? There are three keys to changing the eternal destination of other people. First of all, the key is you. Last week, I shared a verse from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that addresses this question of feeling inadequate. It says that we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That means that even now, you should be prepared to tell your story to others around you who need to hear it. When somebody asks you why you have such peace or joy, tell them it's because of what Christ has done in your life. And what has he done for you? He has saved you from a life of sin. He has saved you from an eternal punishment. He delivered you. He gave you a promise. Don't be afraid to tell your story. But it begins, you have to be willing to share. In addition to your responsibility in it, the Holy Spirit must be involved with it. You can have all the good intentions of the world changing everybody else's life. But if the Holy Spirit is not involved, you are powerless. You do not have enough to be able to change anyone's life. Only God can do that. But the Holy Spirit will choose to fill you and work through you. I have great news for you. The Holy Spirit will do that if you allow him to. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you can speak boldly like you never have before. God can even take someone who is shy and timid and turn them into the most outspoken person in the world. Consider Peter in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, he stood up and he proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ, even in a somewhat confrontational manner. He talks about the people who actually have crucified Christ. Who do you think stand in front of him? The people who had crucified Christ. Peter was very confrontational. It's interesting to contrast him on the day of Pentecost as opposed to just before Christ was crucified. The night of his arrest, when he was questioned as to whether or not he had been with Jesus, and on one occasion, he has a simple servant girl who is asking him and proclaiming that surely you have been with Jesus. And Peter emphatically denying, I don't even know the man. He was afraid. What changed from that night in front of that servant girl to the day of Pentecost? It was the Holy Spirit coming upon him. I assure you today that when you invite the Holy Spirit to come into your life, he will empower you to do things you never thought possible. Along those lines, as the Holy Spirit comes upon you, there is one other key that must be present in your life, and it is the presence of Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't have an issue with confidence. You talk to anybody, but you look around and you simply think, that there are probably others who would do a much better job than you. 
so you don't share your faith because of it. Maybe it's because of your education in general. Maybe you look at it and you weren't really good in school. Maybe you haven't memorized as many of the scriptures. Consider the story of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. Again, we talked about this in recent weeks, but one of the things that I love, it's in Acts chapter 4, and basically they are brought before the Sanhedrin and they very quickly give credit to Jesus Christ. And they're trying to silence them and even trying to reason with them. And at some point they come to the realization that, man, I don't even know if we can talk with these guys. And here's the reason. We're told in Acts 4 verse 13 that they began to recognize there was something unique about these guys. It says in Acts 4 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It wasn't as if they, these were the most educated people in the world, not to say that fishermen are just dumb, but the reality is a fisherman in Peter's day was somebody who Instead of going to school, it was time to go to work at a very young age. So Peter didn't have all this education, but Peter had been with Jesus. He had spent so much time with Jesus that as he spoke, he spoke in many ways the same way that Jesus would. Have you ever spent time with someone where you, you reached a point where, where you could actually finish their sentences you knew what they were thinking as soon as they opened their mouths because you've just been, so, been together so much. Well, imagine being with Jesus, being so intimately connected with him that you begin to speak his words. You begin to think the way that he thinks. In many ways, that is what the body of Christ is supposed to do. My question is, do we truly intimately know Jesus Christ so that as we speak, in many ways, we become God's voice to the people around us? We need to be willing. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But we also need that right relationship with Christ as our foundation. If you are willing, if you are filled with the Spirit, and if you are in an active relationship with Christ, I want you to know today there is no reason why you cannot share your faith with others around you. Now I want to go back to my friend's question that was asked at the beginning. If we truly believe that hell is a real place and that without Christ, all of the people we love will go there, then what will we do about it? How can we bring hope to our loved ones? The first thing that we must do is to pray. Pray for God to grant you the opportunity to share with others. Pray for God to give you the words to speak. And pray that God would open their hearts to the message you have for them. Now here's the coolest part. You already know that God desires for them to be made right with him. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. So he will give you the opportunity to share, if you'll ask. He will give you the words to speak, if you'll ask. And he will even begin to minister to their hearts, even now, if you'll ask. 
But that's where the next step in this plan for reaching our loved ones comes into play. Not only must you pray, but you also must be willing to obey. You see, God is going to open the door. That is not even a question. God desires that they be brought into a right relationship with him. That's already settled. Question is, will you speak up? Will you go out of the way to minister to them, to introduce them to the grace of Jesus Christ? Maybe what you need is simply an open door to start the conversation off. I've just... I've got just the thing to help you with that. In two weeks, two weeks from today, we have a friend day. Some of you right now, you're thinking, well, I don't know how to share with my friends. I don't know how to share with my loved ones. Why don't you start by simply inviting them to church? On November 20th, we're going to have a friend day. And don't just invite one neighbor. I'm encouraging you today to invite as many people as you possibly can. Invite that individual that you work with, and sometimes you guys have a very different perspective on things. Invite them. You know what their greatest need is? It's not for them to think like you. It is for them to meet Jesus Christ. Invite your loved ones that you have been praying for, even the ones that you've looked at and you've thought, that's a lost cause. That individual, there's no way God could reach them. Yes, there is. There's no such thing as a lost cause. Invite them. I'll already tell you, that particular day, I'm going to have Jonathan Heron, one of our guys, share his story with the body of Christ. The, the story as it continues to unfold. Back in August, he celebrated a year of sobriety, but that's not what defines him. It's his relationship with Christ. Maybe you have someone who is struggling with addiction. Maybe they need to hear that there's hope even if they feel like they're lost causes or we feel like they're lost causes. He's going to share the gospel message, telling them how to find the good news of Christ. I want to encourage you. It's so easy for us to invite people to come. Take the first step by inviting them today. Not just one, invite as many as you can. The final step in this plan is to draw you back to what was shared last week. I challenged you to offer discipleship and or mentoring to those whom we love. Today, my challenge is that you would show them the way. Not just that you would pray for the opportunity. Not just that you would obey when God gives you the opportunity. But now that you would also show them the way. In other words, as they come to Christ, you live it in front of them. You become a model for them. You support them. You encourage them. You help them to see that there is hope in Jesus Christ, and it applies to every aspect of your life. You show them the way. I will tell you that this is your game day. And what I mean by that is you are at a point right now where this is your opportunity to truly make a difference in this world. I hope you guys are the most successful people in the world. I hope everyone in here does fantastic in business. I hope everyone in here is successful in everything you endeavor to do. But this is your game day. This is the thing that matters most. It is about introducing people to Jesus Christ. Success will not be driven by how much money you have in your bank account. It's not going to be driven even by how many friends that you have. 
how big your house is or your car, how nice it is. Success is driven by what we did for Jesus Christ. Let me challenge you today to do what God has called you to do. You be the one to bring hope to a world that is desperately in need of hope. Jesus Christ. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are grateful for your grace. Thank you for reaching into our lives and sending someone to present the gospel message to us. As we come before you, Lord, we recognize there are other people in our lives right now who desperately need you. There are people, their faces have come to our minds even today. And Lord, we are praying that you would begin to minister to them, that you would catch their attention, that you would impress upon them the incredible need to truly know you. Help them to recognize that you are the one who can set them free, who can allow them to not only walk in victory in this life, but to live victoriously knowing that eternity awaits and it's a great thing. But also, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do our part. Help us to be your voice. Help us to be quick to share our faith and our hope with others. Help us to be obedient, to bring as many people as possible, not only to church, but to you. Father, we praise you. I pray now as we participate in the Lord's Supper that you would allow this to be a time to simply reflect on your goodness and your grace, the sacrifice of your son, and the new life that it offers to us. We ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are going to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, and as we do, I have a number of uh, ministers that I've already spoken with I've asked to share. Actually, I'm going to ask a couple others if y'all would... Would you mind helping? And Jackie, would you mind helping as well? Uh, we're going to try to uh, offer communion up here at the front. And what I'll ask you guys to do is, uh, as you receive the elements, take them back to your pews and then wait for everyone else to receive it. This is an open invitation for a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Some churches do this uh, to where only those who are members are allowed to participate. But the way the Wesleyan Church does it is, if you are a child of God you have the opportunity and the privilege to celebrate what he did through the sacrifice of his son. We celebrate not just the fact that somebody died. We celebrate, celebrate the fact that through his death, we are offered redemption and hope. Today, as we celebrate communion, I want to challenge you to consider what the death of Christ means to you. The redemption that he brought and only he could bring. Recognize how good and gracious he's been to you. As these individuals come forward, uh, we're going to serve you communion. And again, uh, as we serve, we just invite everyone to participate. There'll be stations that'll be set up over on this side in the middle and here on this side. Please come and receive the elements of communion this morning.
anyone unable to come forward who would like to be served this morning, we can bring it to you. As Jesus met with his disciples on the last night that he was with them, he shared of a sacrifice that would take place. He said he would offer his body as that sacrifice, knowing that in doing so, it would in many ways shatter the dreams that many of them had as they perceived he had come to overthrow the Roman authorities. As Jesus met with his disciples, though, he didn't think the same way that they did. For he recognized that his sacrifice would do more than his overthrowing governments. See, he was not there to conquer people. He was there to conquer sin. And that's exactly what he did by allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we know these are common, ordinary elements. They're just bread and grape juice but they represent something far more precious to us. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to recognize what your sacrifice meant. Not only what it meant to you, the incredible laying of your, laying aside your own self for us, but what it means to us to know that we have been redeemed. And today we can walk in victory. Lord, I pray that this would be more than a ritual, but this would be a part of us being new people, knowing that we have been redeemed by you. As Jesus took the bread, he said, this represents my body that's broken for you. Every time you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And they partook of their bread. And he took the wine. And he said, this represents my blood that is shed for you, the blood of a new covenant. He said, without the shedding of this blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But every time you drink of this, do it in remembrance of me. Again, Father, as we partake of these elements, we ask that you would be honored in us. Not just now, but moving forward. Every moment of our lives, let us be a reflection of those who have been redeemed. In Christ's name we pray. I want to thank each of you for being here. If you would, if you'll leave the cups in your pews, uh, we'll make sure that they get taken care of, cleaned up. Uh, But we thank you so much for being here and being a part of our service. I do encourage you, pray for the election that's coming up, but pray for God's Holy Spirit to move in this land as well. Pray for revival to take place and begin to identify people that you want to have in the body of Christ. By the way, hopefully that's everybody you know. What role will you play in making that happen? Thank you for being with us and go in peace.